So Psalm 1, verse 1, starts with the word blessed and ends with the word perish from verse 6. Psalm 2, 1, begins with the word why and ends with the word him. Psalm 3, verse 1, begins with the word Lord and ends with the word Selah. Psalm 4, verse 1, begins with the word here and ends with the word safety. Psalm 5, verse 1, begins with the word give and ends with the word shield. Just a few thoughts to begin this live Sunday service. And last week we looked at Psalm 5 and uh, just go back to verse uh, 7 again. But as for me, King David speaking of course, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Well of course you know that when David was speaking, the first temple hadn't yet been built. The tabernacle had, but the first temple had not yet been built. It would be Solomon, son of David, who would build such a beautiful building. One of the seven wonders of the world. But of course, like I said last Sunday, he's got the heavenly temple in mind from Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple, third heaven of course. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. And of course you know that the Lord doesn't have literal eyelids. Anthropomorphical language of course. So just a few thoughts to begin this live Lord's Day service. Father we pray for your blessing this morning as we begin Psalm 6. We ask you to open up thy word to fill us with thy spirit. To help us to comprehend some of the mysteries in the scriptures, the word of the living God. We pray you will be with us this morning as we begin Psalm 6. This will be week 13. And by the grace of God, we were able to pass the eight and a half hour mark past Sunday, this past Sunday. And we look forward to continuing on this Lord's Day to look at the sixth Psalm, Psalm 6. And we pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Psalm 6 is entitled to the chief musician on Niganuth or Niganoth. Upon Sheminiath or Sheminiath, a psalm of David. So we know over the last 13 Sundays that so far every psalm was written by King David. He would write most of the book of Psalms. In fact, he's one of the most prolific characters back in the Old Testament. I think only Moses would surpass him when it comes to the amount of books that were penned. But David, once again, is our focus, our person to profile he's still got the incident with Absalom ongoing doesn't seem to be uh, disappearing anytime soon it's continuing on his son is hounding him hunting him like a wild animal and David is now starting to feel uh, some of the pressure he's been very upbeat he's been very stoic up until now but Psalm 6 begins with O Lord rebuke me not in thine anger neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure so he knows straight away, and we know straight away, that David wasn't sinless. And I say that because uh, from Psalm uh, 4.1 it says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And uh, like I said a few weeks ago, I was looking at some of my reference Bibles, which were suggesting that in the Old Testament people were saved by their faith and their works. A blasphemous statement, because man has nothing to offer the Lord, it said how Noah found grace in the sights of the Lord. It's always been grace from beginning to end, uh, from creation to Calvary, from Calvary to the end of the church age, and even going into the thousand year reign. How God dispenses grace will differ, of course, but it has to be grace because we have nothing to offer the Lord whatsoever. It's like this. What do you buy someone who has everything? Nothing, of course. What do you give someone who has everything? Nothing, of course. 
The one who has everything gives you something. And then you've got something to be rejoicing in. O Lord, 6-1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Hebrew says, if you belong to the Lord, he will chastise you. He will chasten you. And if you are never chastened or chastised, you are a bastard, literally. If you are a Christian, he gives you a lot of leeway. He allows you to enjoy a lot of slack. The longer you have been saved, the less you are given such slack. The longer you have been saved, the more difficult it is to get away with sin, to get away with doing silly carnal things. But when you were first saved, if you can think back to when you were first saved, you said and did a lot of things which the Lord overlooked. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. So David is suffering because of the Absalom incidents. He doesn't get father of the year. Let's be quite honest, he was a good godly man. He was saved in heaven today. He will be on the new earth with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years, quite possibly, along with his son Solomon and uh, people like Josiah and other greats in the Old Testament, probably Hezekiah and uh, some of the others as well. Perhaps even uh, Manasseh, who did repent. Samson, of course, one of the Old Testament greats, not a king, of course, he was a prophet. But we expect these greats to be on the new earth. Joseph, absolutely. Probably Abel, the first martyr in the Old Testament. And of course, John the Baptist, the first martyr in the New Testament. It wasn't Stephen, it was John the Baptist. Although John the Baptist technically is an Old Testament saint, where Stephen is a New Testament saint. But David is really struggling, and there's a shift taking place concerning his state, never his standing. I mean, I can't think of what would be worse than your own sibling, or one of your own children, or your spouse perhaps, turning against you. But for David... This is being done out in the public. The enemies of the Lord are watching what is going on, loving it, of course. If you think of two friendly countries, maybe Britain and America, for example, having a fallout, having a disagreement, the Russians love it, the Chinese love it, the Iranians love it. Or you think about America and Israel having a disagreement, perhaps. Again, the Muslim countries love it. They see a weakness creeping into the alliance. But how about your own family? How about your son or your daughter or your children in general, turning against you. It's incredibly painful. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Keep your hand there and go to Psalm 22. So David is speaking, obviously. He is the author of this, obviously. But as every part of scripture, and we spent several weeks trying to show you this, the greater David is very much in the picture. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, look at verse 17. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Well, David is speaking, but of course the greater David is speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. He's on the cross, of course. Go back to Psalm 6 again. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. Physically weak, spiritually weak, emotionally weak. If you have a weak immune system, if you are ever under the weather, as we say in the UK, if you feel under par, if you feel under the cosh, if you don't feel 100% physically, spiritually or emotionally, you become worn down, you get an ulcer too, you start to feel unwell, you start to uh, take to your bed and if a virus comes along or the flu or some serious pandemic comes along, you really are going to feel it, aren't you? Oh Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed like in torment. Go to Psalm 
go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. David is a fascinating character to profile. He's certainly my favourite king in the Old Testament. A wonderful man of God. But, like all of us, had two natures. Old man, new man. Of course, he wasn't born again. That's a New Testament doctrine. But he was saved through his faith in Jehovah. He would receive imputation. Uh, and yet, like all of us today who are saved, he really would battle the old man. And I've said many times over the years, it wasn't just the Bathsheba incident, which most people think about. He had many other wives, many other concubines. And uh, on one occasion, he would even work alongside the Philistines to come against Israel. A fascinating character. But from James 5, James 5, uh, look at verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So you're Catholic priest, if you know any Catholic priests, if you are friendly with Catholic priests, and we've known many, Patrick and I, we've had five priests in our family, and we've known many priests over the years, even a couple of cardinals. In fact, one year I had a cardinal in my car, and I was driving him around South London with Patrick, of course, and our parish priest, and he was from Scotland, an interesting character, a very charismatic, flamboyant cardinal. I wasn't saved, of course, at the time, but uh, I mean, talk about charm. These priests have a lot of charm, and you have his Catholic get seduced by what they say, how they come across. But if you were to sit down with this uh, cardinal that I spent, or we spent some time with, maybe two or three days, uh, many years ago, about 20 years ago it was, uh, he would have said to you, well, I have power as a priest. What do they say? Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. But of course, that piece of scripture is referring to Jesus Christ. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's not a reference to uh, Roman Catholic priests. But if you were to sit down with a priest or a monsignor or a canon or what have you and ask them where they get their uh, scripture when it comes to forgiving sins or giving the last rites, they'll take you to James chapter 5. But let's look at it one more time. Let's break this down. Is any sick among you? Context, Jewish Christians, first century, suffering terribly concerning uh, unbelieving Jews, of course. I guess if you are if you are a Muslim and you get saved in the Middle East, it's pretty difficult for you. You are hounded, and uh, your parents may decide to murder you. And they call that an honor killing in the Islamic community. But here, context, first century, Jewish Christians suffering, a bit like David. But let's keep reading on. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, not the priest, not the pastor, not the bishop, elders, like men, for the most part married, although that's not compulsory because Paul was not married, uh, John was not married, and uh, perhaps Jude was also not married. But elders uh, in the church, for the most part, were married men with children. But again, that's not compulsory because Paul, as far as we know, had no children. John, as far as we know, had no children. And Jude, as far as we know, had no children. But the idea is you've got a plurality of elders. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Literal oil, no problem with that. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, the faith of the elders, not the recipient. Did you see that? And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So you've got somebody who's dying, a dying Catholic, if you want to take this to apply to them. And of course that's asegesis, not exegesis. But if you were to take this piece of scripture 
and say this gives the Catholic credibility, it says the complete opposites. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. He'll get saved. And the Lord shall raise him up. He won't die. And if he have committed sins, if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, not sins, faults. And pray one for another, that ye may be healed. Why would you die? Death isn't in the context here. Healing, recovery, restoration is. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So James 5, 14, 15 and 16, partly would have been of help to King David. But of course David is on the move with his men and he's trying to escape uh, for his life. I think it's quite possible that Absalom, 40 years younger than him, could have found him, could have hunted him down and perhaps killed him. Although, if you look at David in great detail and his men of war, uh, it was almost impossible really to get anywhere near him. Like Cromwell, or if we go back to some of the American generals, it could be Bradley, uh, it could be uh, that guy who went to Italy, uh, the American general who liberated Italy, Mark Clark, or Montgomery in Britain, some of the greats, not just uh, guys from old like uh, Cromwell, but there have been other greats, or go back to... Uh, the British took on Napoleon, uh, Trafalgar, and uh, what's the other guy's name? Marlborough. And there's one more whose name escapes me. Ney, Marshal Ney. Marshal Ney, but there's another one who escapes me. He came out of retirement and he dealt with Napoleon. They come to me later. But those guys had battles and they won every battle they fought. But one more time, and we'll go back to the Psalm 6. Is any sick among you? Now, we all say this for today. This could be in reference to a spiritual sickness. You may feel spiritually run down. You may feel dry. A lot of your pastors go on sabbaticals. They get very dry. They can't preach. They can't teach. They need to refresh their batteries. Evangelists can also feel pressure and dryness, and they need to be prayed over. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But for the first century, I'm thinking about this being in reference to not only a physical illness, but a spiritual illness. Again, going back to huge massive persecution from unbelieving jews but it can go either way and also this is written around 40 a.d the sign gifts are still prevalent of course is any sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick again the prayer of faith comes from the elders not the sick person if you go back to the the incidents when christ was preaching in uh, i think it was simon peter's home and four guys start to take the roof off and they lower a cripple down into the basements of the property or into the living room of the, of the property. And the Lord commends the faith of those who are literally tearing the roof off to get the cripple into the property uh, to be healed. He says, thy faith hath saved thee. Who's he speaking to? Those that had the faith to climb up onto the roof in the first place and lower the sick man down to be healed. Prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Physical sins, spiritual sins. And like I said, this could have been of help to King David. Confess your faults one to another. Be careful with this. Catholics say, well, this is a good verse for confession. No, it says faults, not sins. And also it says you are to confess your faults to one another, not to a priest. If you are a Roman Catholic going to Mass on a regular basis, you are to, you are to go to confession before you receive the sacraments. And you think you are doing a great thing. But here's the question. Does a priest confess his sins to you? Well, of course not. You are told to confess your sins to him. But he won't tell you about his sins. And here, if you want to take this to be in reference to the Mass, 
to the sacraments, to confession. It goes both ways. But your average Catholic doesn't understand that. Confess your faults one to another. In the context, Jewish Christians, first century. But for today, we can still use this for today. A fault is not a sin. A sin is not a fault. And pray one for another. Intercede for one another. That ye may be healed. Physical healing. Emotional healing. Spiritual healing. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Go back to Psalm 6. Look at verse 2 again. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. So David is speaking, but the greater David is speaking. David as king is speaking concerning the ongoing incidents with Absalom, a type of the Antichrist, but in type, the greater David is speaking concerning unbelieving Israel and the devil going around like a roaring lion, signet of our whom he will. Look at verse 3 from Psalm 6. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Sore vexed, Old English for troubled, like greatly troubled. Now his literal soul inside of his body is not in the context, but his well-being is, his personage is. My soul, my inner being, my uh, personage, if you will, is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? So Christ was on the cross for, what, six hours? And for three of those six hours, it's pitch black. Uh, and apparently in Italy, around the time that Christ was on the cross, it was pitch black. A complete solar eclipse. And Christ is about to give up the spirit. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirits. But here David is speaking. My soul is also sore vexed, troubled, greatly troubled. I feel like I'm about to implode from within. But thou, O Lord, how long? How long will you allow this to go on? Not just the Absalom incidents, but the feeling of shame, guilt, uh, the feeling of being a failure of a father. And I'm convinced that David is thinking about the Absalom incidents, but not just that. How he was a failure when it came to being a father, never chastened, never chastised Absalom, allowed him to get away with absolute murder. And what do they say? If you don't discipline your children, they become sport brats. Of course, if you over-discipline them, uh, they can become... Uh, out of control they can become uh, difficult to later control they can become a law unto their own selves so you have to discipline them with love of course but you must you must discipline your children look at verse 4 return O Lord deliver my soul O save me for thy mercy's sake well this of course has an eschatological application to it return O Lord where's he been what he would say I'm going to go to prepare a place for you uh, when I prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Again, there's more material in the book of Psalms about the second coming of Christ than Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all combined. But on top of that, Psalm 6 and 5 is dated to around 1048 BC, whereas Psalm 3 and 4, 1022 BC. So you're way back to what, a thousand, before, a thousand years before Christ. And as David is speaking, writing, He's seeing the second advent. He's calling on the Lord to return. Of course, for the Jews today, they are still waiting for him to come. But for us, we are waiting for him to return. But go back to verse 1 again. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Vexed, like in trouble, worn out, in torments, if you will. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? So we've been waiting for the Lord to return for many a year. 
I've been a Christian almost 20 years, Patrick, over 20 years, but that's nothing when it comes to eternity. Many of the greats waited and waited and waited for Christ to return. I remember some years ago speaking to an evangelist, he's now dead, and he'd been preaching for 50 plus years, and uh, I met him maybe a year or two after I got saved, and I said to him, uh, is the rapture imminent? And he said, yes, I believe it is, but I'd always hoped to go up with my wife. She had died maybe a year or two before uh, I was saved, yeah. and long before I'd met him, of course. Yeah. And she never saw the rapture. And this guy died, I think, four years ago. I saw online he died about four or five years ago, and he didn't see the rapture either. Uh, Luther was always looking forward to the Lord's return, unlike Calvin. Look at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of thee in a grave. Who shall give thee thanks? So be careful now. Going back to how do you exegete the book of Psalms devotionally? Well, yes, every verse can be wonderful to read when it comes to devotional, uh, devotional, devotionally and devotional time with the Lord, absolutely. You can spiritualize every passage in Scripture, but be careful, of course, if you do that. But doctrinally, doctrine, Paul is the apostle to go to. Most, most of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is historical, obviously. Uh, so be careful if you exegete the Gospels, but for the book of Psalms, for the most part, and I've been very careful over the last 13 Sundays not to rush in and teach such verses as this to be doctrinally relevant for today. Because if you do so, you're going to fall into annihilation, like these Seventh-day Adventists and these Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at it again. For in death, physical death, there is no remembrance of thee. But that's not true, is it? Luke 16 speaks about a rich man dying, and he's crying out to Father Abraham. He's obviously a Jew, Father Abraham, Patriarch Abraham. And he says, go to, or send somebody to my five brothers, preach to them, lest they come to this awful place of torment. There's that word again, torment, going back to vexed in verse 2. And he says to the rich man, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, how can I assist you? How can I help you? How can they be assisted and helped? And he says they won't be saved any other way because they've got the writings. In other words, if the writings aren't going to do the job, how can I do the job? And he starts to beg Abraham to send somebody to take care of his five other brothers. And he says, no, if they won't listen to the word of God, they won't listen to somebody who was to be raised from the dead, picturing Christ. He comes up out of the tomb. He goes to his apostles. Over 500 people see him at once. And yet the leaders in Israel don't believe on him. They whip Peter, they whip John. Paul gets saved, Acts chapter 9. And he goes to his own peers, and again, they don't want to receive it. They reject it. Acts 7, Stephen gets up, starts to preach to them. They stone him, and as he's being stoned, he says he sees Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of the Father, ready to come back if the Jews would receive him. But of course they don't, and he sits down. And he's been seated for, what, 2,000 years? But verse 5 again, for in death there is no remembrance of thee in the grave. Who shall give thee thanks? Keep your hand there and go to Psalm 49. We also refer to this as progressive revelation. It's incredibly important that we take the time, and we will do now for some considerable time, to look at this one verse uh, so we don't fall into the trap of annihilation. Yes, it would be great uh, if you're unsaved, friends and family were just annihilated. Upon death, I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to spend five minutes in hell. But for uh, the Lord, it's a very different situation. It would say how his way is not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. 
And the way we conduct ourselves is very different to how he conducts himself. Psalm 49, Psalm 49, look at verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he shall receive me, Selah. Absolutely true. But keep reading on. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. So far, so good. His glory shall not descend after him. So far, so good. When the rich die, they leave everything behind. In fact, somebody once died, a very wealthy man, and they asked the question, how much did he leave? And the answer was, he left everything. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. That's why they make so much money now. That's why they work 14 hours a day, 7 days a week. Because they want to enjoy their life for here and now. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, absolutely. He gave himself whatever he wanted, never said no. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. They want to be with the winner, of course. When you're on the way up, you've got people going with you. When you are on the way down, they start to abandon you. I've always thought this, that if you are a wealthy person, you will never know who really loves you for who you are, not what you are. They say this, that a wealthy man who isn't much to look at can have any woman and he marries her for her looks. She marries him for his money. But if he had no money... She wouldn't give him the time of day. And that's very true. If you look back over history to some of the most successful couples and wealthy men, for the most part, the women are only present for the money. He marries her for her looks. She marries him for his money. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. It is the point unto man wants to die, but after this the judgment. They shall never see light. So far, so good. Out of darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Man, that is an honour and understandeth not. It's like the beasts that perish. So that offers more light to Psalm 6. 6, for in death there is no remembrance of thee in the grave. Who shall give thee thanks? But of course David is coming at this in a similar way to Solomon. He's saying for the unsaved person, what thanks can he give the Lord? No thanks, he's damned. But again, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he shall receive me, Selah, absolutely. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou do wellest to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. How fire forever, blind in a lake of fire, like a worm which can't see, cannot feel, uh, but is conscious. Or cannot see, cannot speak, but can feel, I should say. Man that is in honour and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. Go to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. If you keep reading, you get the answers to some of these difficult passages. But if you just read one verse, uh, you're going to struggle. So again, you can spiritualise any part of scripture. You can historicalize any piece of scripture. You can doctrinalize any piece of scripture you can eschatologicalize any piece of scripture but the more i read the book of psalms the more i am pleasantly surprised how much of this is able to be taught doctrinally providing we take our time carefully uh, psalm 115 look at verse 17 the dead praise not the lord neither any that go down into silence well of course they can't they're like worms uh, the worm that never dies Cast into outer darkness, like I say, the second death. A worm cannot speak, cannot see. It feels its way around. 
The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Go to Isaiah uh, 38. And uh, Isaiah 38. And then we're going to go to uh, Ecclesiastes. Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. David was a very uh, privileged man, a beloved man, like I say, would write most of the Psalms, uh, but he wasn't shown everything. It would be Moses who would be told the Lord's intimate name, I am that I am, uh, Jehovah. And for King David, he's given uh, X amounts of information uh, concerning the afterlife, but he's not given everything. Peter was told an awful lot, but he wasn't given everything. Paul was given more than probably any other apostle, but even he wasn't shown everything. I mean, it would be John the Apostle who'd write the book of Revelation, and he would see the Antichrist and the false prophet. Paul would not. Paul speaks about the uh, the Antichrist, but off the top of my head, he doesn't speak about the false prophet. Yeah. Only John does. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah 38, Isaiah 38. Look at verse 18. For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit Cannot hope for thy truth. Well, of course, there's no second chance for you, is there? You die without Christ, where do you go? You can't go up. You've got to go down. Again, it is appointed unto man once, 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 once to die. But after this, the judgment. For the grave, Sheol, for the Old Testament, hell for now. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. This is Hezekiah speaking, who starts off bad and becomes good. King Saul starts off good, becomes bad. Saul of Tarsus starts off bad, becomes good. And here these verses offer a bit more lights, a bit more hope. But one last time, for the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. There's no way out. Many roots in, but none out, uh, none out, of course. The living, the living. He shall praise thee. You should praise him. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. As I do this day, the father to the children shall make known thy truth. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Uh, go to Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think it's chapter 6. Uh... Ecclesiastes 6, and I've got two here. Uh, let's do 6 first. Ecclesiastes 6, uh, look at verse 6. Yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. Well, yes, they do. They go into the ground, Luke 16. But, of course, there's two parts to hell, which Solomon wouldn't have been told. Didn't know that. But, again, Solomon is writing from the standpoint of a philosophical unsaved character who's basically doing his own thing and i got one more which uh i think it's ecclesiastes 9 yep ecclesiastes 9 and then i'll pull all these verses together ecclesiastes 9 ecclesiastes 9 uh look at verse 5 for the living know that they shall die absolutely 10 out of 10 people die uh, when you will die only the lord knows but that you will die we all know of course and that's why we do street work. That's why we try to give out tracts. We try to connect with people. We try to share the gospel with people. 
For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So Solomon is speaking from the standpoint of an unsaved worldly man who has no hope, has gained the whole world and lost his own soul. David slightly echoes him, but if you read those other passages and go back to Psalm 6, you get a greater light when it comes to understanding more about this particular verse. For in death, 6.5, there is no remembrance of thee. Not true, but to be fair to David, he didn't know the full scope to the afterlife. It wasn't down to him to know everything. I mean, Paul was given a, a, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Why was that? To keep him humble. He would say that he had great knowledge of everything. He understood all mysteries. And yet the Lord looked at Paul and said, You are a great man, greatly beloved, like Daniel was back in the Old Testament. Job and Noah back in the Old Testament. But I'm going to stop you from getting too puffed up. I will allow Noah to be intoxicated. We call this the Lord's permissive will. And I will allow Job to be uh, really ill, physically ill for such a long period of time, in fact for seven days and seven nights, he was completely silent, he couldn't speak. And Daniel, I will allow to go into captivity, and I will allow him to be uh, cast, uh, not castigated, uh, castrated, thank you. He was castrated, a humiliating aspect for a young man, and he was a prisoner to Nebuchadnezzar for all of his life, really. Mm -hmm. And those great men were kept humble. David is, keep, is, is being kept humble, and so would be the Apostle Paul. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? And that's a context. A lost man, burning, suffering, uh, deteriorating. I mean, a billion years from now, he's still down there. And yet, like I said a few minutes ago, I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to suffer. I mean, if you crossed me, if you were to wrong me, I would probably forgive you. In fact, I would forgive you. wouldn't have to think twice about it. But I wouldn't want you to spend five minutes burning. But of course, the Lord isn't me. And I'm not the Lord. But so far, we're looking at suffering. We're looking at someone who is really struggling. And verse 6 continues to build on this. I am weary with my groaning. All the nights make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Couch like a bed, like a recliner. And it says he's weary, he's tired with his groaning. All the nights, all the nights make I my bed to swim. Of course, he's not literally speaking about enough water to swim in. This is figurative language. But he is emotional. And like I say, his... Uh, State has now switched. It's a radical shift concerning or compared to previous psalms. I am weary. I am tired with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. So it's one thing to suffer for doing right. And it's something else to suffer for doing wrong. If you think about James Arminius. Was in poor health for most of his life. Was physically attacked for standing for the truth. And I've read uh, his five points, the five points of Arminian or Arminius, which aren't so well known. We all talk about the tulip, the five points of tulip, but the five points of James Arminian's theology isn't very different to the five points of the tulip. And yet, uh, when Arminius was four years of age, Calvin died. But Calvin was 54 when he died, 54. And Calvin would spend uh, five months housebound. He was uh, incapacitated for a long period of time. James Arminius was a good godly man, a very clever man, a very bright man. And Theodore Bezra, who was one of Calvin's contemporaries, said that James Arminius could have replaced Calvin. He was bright enough to uh, be in that same category. But of course, Calvin's testimony is questionable. If you read his Institutes, only once did he mention his testimony. Only once. 
And it seems that he is more uh, interested in, in uh, embracing the fundamentals of the faith, not a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was 49, James Arminius, when he died. 49, it's nothing. Like I say, he would suffer poor health all of his life, was physically attacked, and has gone down to be one of the greats. Or how about James Hepburn, not so well known, known as Lord Bothwell, not very well known, not a household name I know, but Lord Bothwell was uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, third husband. A very violent man, a vicious man. He raped her. She fell pregnant. She was forced to marry him. And she miscarried twins due to his uh, cruelness. And yet he got his comeuppance, old Bothwell, who was chained in a Danish prison cell for 11 years. The cell was like five by four or six by five. He couldn't stand up straight. His hair was down to his feet. His nails were down to his knees. And there's a picture of a man suffering for his sins. The wages of sin is death. Whereas Arminius was suffering for doing right, Bothwell was suffering for doing wrong. And like I say, he got his comeuppance, would become insane, lost his mind, literally. He was chained up like a wild animal, never put on trial. He went to uh, Denmark. He thought he could do a deal with the king. He thought he could capitalise on his wife's royalty. And of course, when he arrived in Denmark, it all went pear-shaped. They arrested him. They held him initially for a ransom. And when nothing was paid for his uh, release, they detained him. And as far as we know, he died insane in a rat-infested cell uh, in the worst possible state imaginable. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. He's singing about his son, Absalom, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, would to God. It had not been you, Absalom. Slightly paraphrasing, but he's singing about his son. I water my couch with my tears. He's emotional. Paul was emotional. Christ was emotional. All the greats were emotional. It's not unheard of for a grown alpha male to cry. It's rare, but it's not unheard of. Whereas a beta male cries all the time. Look at verse 7. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. He's watching and waiting for Absalom, who's a type of the Antichrist. And David is a type of the Jew in the tribulation who's watching for the Lord to return. Job is a picture of the Jew who's waiting for Christ to return. It says at the end of Job how he was released from captivity. Picturing the Jew in the tribulation. Mine eye is consumed like wasted away or utterly ruined. Because of grief, a, a, uh, a wayward child will break a parent's heart. Much like an absent father or an absent mother will uh, cause grief to... A child who is in care. An orphan perhaps. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Consumed like uh, wasted away or utterly ruined. Keep your hand there and go to Job 17. Job 17. Uh, look at verse 7. Mine eye also is dim by reason of sorrow. And all my members are as a shadow. Same sort of a language. But one more. Go to Luke 15. Ruined. Wasted. Uh, Luke 15, this also needs to be looked at uh, when it comes to the heresy of annihilation. Uh, if you die without Christ, you're not annihilated. You don't sleep the big sleep, as they say. If you die without Christ, you are conscious forever. And uh, the New Testament is very clear about that. Christ would really exegete the scriptures, really open up the word of God. And uh, what David would begin, the greater David would uh, fulfill. Uh, Luke, what did I say? Luke 15. Uh, I'm still reading through Luke at the moment Luke 15 Luke 15 look at verse 
uh, 17. And when he came to himself, prodigal son, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. Perish like I am ruined, like I am wasting away. Not in the sense of being completely annihilated. And this also gets cited by the JWs and the SDA that if you die without Christ, you are annihilated, which is a heresy. Mark 9 says how the worm never dies. Uh, weeping away and gnashing of teeth. But here one more time. And when he came to himself, there's your picture of repentance. Based on his own free will, incidentally, not the Lord's sovereignty. Going back to how Calvin got total depravity wrong. In fact, if you study James Arminian, uh, excuse, me, excuse me, James Arminius, known as an Arminian, if you study James Arminius and John Calvin very carefully and check both their uh, five points, the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism, not much difference. Not much difference. I think only once uh, Arminius would say that it was possible that you could lose your salvation. And yet I've heard Calvinists say that it is possible. It's not, of course, I don't believe it. Once saved, always saved. But he said it was possible. And he had many verses in mind, which at first read do suggest that it is possible to lose your salvation. But of course, if you read the verses carefully and uh, conclusively and collectively with other verses in the, in the correct context, you will see that you cannot lose your salvation. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish like I am ruined, like I am consumed with hunger. Go back to Psalm 6. The scripture of scripture, you understand, hopefully, a bit more about this uh, piece of scripture. Seven again, mine eye is consumed because of grief, as was Job's, and so now it's David's turn. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. It, it's like it's drenched. Waxeth old like it's drenched. My bed is soaking wet. I'm crying not only for my sins, and that's good, godly sorrow bringeth forth repentance but he's also crying for the welfare of Absalom he knows that this is terrible news for Israel one of Israel's sons uh, being Absalom taking on one of the sons of Israel or Israel's greatest son at the time being David it's it's devastating it's a civil war basically you go back to the Americas you go back to America civil war under Lincoln the north and the south fighting over slavery fighting over land fighting over the, the uh, church of Rome's hold they were very powerful in the south, of course, whereas the north was predominantly Protestant. And you got the south, the north fighting. I forget how many people died in both wars. It was very high, went on for many years, I think longer than World War Two. And uh, at one point, Lincoln thought it couldn't be won. And he thought that perhaps the south may win, or there would, there would be a stalemate or a ceasefire. But of course, he persevered on any one. Depart from me, verse 8, or you workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. Keep your hand there and go to Luke 13. Luke 13. Again, David is speaking. Uh, all those that practice iniquity. And we spent quite a bit of time last week looking at what iniquity is. It's not just what you do, but what you say. A heretic uh, who comes along with a false gospel is guilty of this. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. Uh, Luke 13, Luke 13, I think it's verse 27, 27. But he shall say, Jesus speaking, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Again, script with scripture, and this book really comes alive. 
But here, iniquity, people that do wrong, people that do evil. A few days ago, I saw uh, online an article about a widow of a British police officer who was killed year before last. He was called out to robbery. I think it was a traveller's uh, location, travellers or gypsies as they used to be called. And he arrived on scene. And uh, one of the great disgraces in Britain is that the police are not armed. And he arrived at this uh, traveller's sites on his own, I think, or with one other colleague. Took on these four or five gypsies, travellers, and they dragged his legs. Uh, they, they tied his legs to the back of the uh, getaway car. Dragged him, I think, a thousand yards. He died. He died. He was dragged to his death. And uh, I think it was last month they found the uh, people guilty, quite rightly so, but of manslaughter, not murder. And they've been given very uh, generous prison sentences, shall we say, and the widow has gone to the Attorney General to get the uh, sentences increased. But here's the thing. I read some of what she said. She said this, If a police officer was killed in the line of duty, he should be given, or in, in his memory, those that killed the police officer should be given 20 years. I thought, is that all? Is that all your husband is worth, just 20 years? How about death? Or how about life without parole? What's wrong with these people? Why are these people passive? This widow will never see her husband again. He's dead. Probably lost as well in hell right now. But nonetheless, he, 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 he's lost. He was a brave man. And all she wants is 20 years in memory of her late widow husband. It's not long enough. I say death or failing at life without parole. Two days ago, the king of Thailand pardoned two criminals that murdered a British man and woman that were travelling to Thailand. And again, it just staggers me. The victim's family wrote to the king of Thailand saying, please, uh, your majesty, would you pardon these two men who murdered our son and daughter? I think there were a couple at the time, dating in Thailand. Two families. And the king has uh, pardoned these two on death row and given them life without parole. What's going on here? Why aren't more people demanding the death penalty for murder? We are a passive nation. He thought he was doing the right thing. Pressure from London, perhaps. Uh, pressure from the Foreign Office, perhaps. The two perpetrators have now been pardoned and they'll spend the rest of their lives in prison. And this uh, widow of a British police officer, she was content to uh, see the assailants uh, serve 20 years each. It's not enough. It's not enough. And I don't understand why people aren't demanding longer sentences. But nonetheless, the perpetrators in Thailand are practicing iniquity and the uh, gypsies or the travellers that murdered that police officer are workers of iniquity. Depart from me. Verse 8. Get away from me. I never knew you. Matthew 7, Luke 13. Picture of somebody who wasn't saved. Never saved to begin with. But here David is speaking. All you workers of iniquity. Not just physical sins, but what you say and do. You lie about the gospel. You say we can forgive sins. Going back to James chapter 5. That the priest can give you the last rites. That if you are dying, the priest can pardon you. And of course he cannot pardon you. Only Christ can pardon you. The best a saved person can do is say, if you've believed on Christ, if you have received Christ by the authority of Scripture, I can tell you that you are saved. But I can't forgive you your sins. Nobody can forgive you your sins. Only Christ can forgive you of your sins. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. Everything that Christ would, would uh, ask of the Father would be given to him. He was never once turned down. He that has seen me hath seen the Father, and as the Father was working, so too was the Son. So, I'll just quickly wrap this message up. We've already gone over time, but this main piece of scripture is dealing with uh, David's terror. And of course, David's terror becomes his enemy's terror. 
This is a very emotional uh, piece of script to like Paul. Uh, he's very passionate and yet powerless without the personal intervention of the potentates of potentates. We looked briefly at James Arminius and James Hepburn, two very different people, suffering for different reasons. It's great to suffer for the Lord, but most of us suffer for our own stupid decisions, our own fleshly uh, desire to do what we want to do. And uh, it's, it's nothing worse than, it's, there's nothing worse than reading about somebody suffering uh, for what they don't need to be suffering for. Just last night, I saw in Belarus an uprising has taken place. The people are wanting to overthrow their president of, what, 28 years? Talk about a dictator. Yeah. Europe's last dictator. And a woman was being interviewed and she said this. She said uh, women were being taken to police stations, strip searched, forced to stand naked for hours on end. Men were naked on their knees and being humiliated with electric rods. And she said, I could hear people, I could hear men crying for their mothers. I thought about World War One, Young British soldiers crying for their mothers. It's like this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, if you don't know God Almighty, when you really are at your lowest ebb, you start to call for your mother. Maybe your father, but chances are you will call for your mother because you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, grown men, naked, on the knees, being electrocuted with prods, animal prods that they use in, in the farms to uh, electrocute, the, uh, electrocute the animals. And they're using these awful devices on parts of the, of the human anatomy, which we won't discuss this morning, <laughs> uh, to cause grown men to start screaming and crying for their mothers, as it were, during World War One, is horrific. And all these people in Belarus trying to get a new government and grown men, it just reminds me of, 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 of World War One and these people... Uh, when they start to cry for their mothers or their fathers, are lost souls as they were very much in World War One, And we'll close it there and pick it up next week from Psalm 6, verse 9. So Psalm 6 begins with the term, O Lord. And if you think of a typical person, when he or she is dying, they will say Lord or O Lord or OMG, which is a very common throwaway term, which is used by many people. Mostly lost, of course, but this goes back to what I said last Sunday concerning the Belarus uprising. Grown men being forced to strip naked, get on their knees, being tortured by Belarus's secret police, crying, wailing, a picture of hell, of course, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, and you've got grown men calling for their mothers. And you ask the question, why would they be doing such a thing? Because they are lost. But a saved person will say, O oh Lord, or O oh God, or God. Because when you leave this earth, if you are lost, uh, you have one or two things to say, or one or two uh, ways to express your grief. Either you will call on your God, or you will call out to your lost mother, or your lost father. Or if you are lost, you will call out as a lost sinner to your lost parents. But look at 6-1 again. O oh Lord, O oh God, O oh Lord. David is speaking. Rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me, chastise me in thy hot displeasure. So it could be once again a throwback to the Absalom incident, or this could be a picture of David, a wonderful type of a New Testament Christian suffering, suffering for doing right. The Apostle Paul would suffer for doing right, but if you suffer for doing wrong, you've got a problem. If you suffer for doing wrong, like the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord, you know what is going on. But most people suffer for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing right, that's something to be joyful about. 
O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary, I am tired with my groaning, with my wrestling, if you will, groaning, moaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Now, back in biblical times, a bed was like a mobile home, if you will. Or if you think of a, of a homeless person, he can pick up his mattress, his bedding, if you will, and go from A to B. If you think back to the Gospels, on one occasion Jesus would heal a man and he would say, uh, take up your bed and go. Take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed and move. So David has got to a recliner of some kind and he's able to move from A to B and take his bed with him. And it says one more time, I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye, verse 7, is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. So it could be Absalom. It could be enemies in general, enemies of the cross. The Apostle Paul would say how the Jews are enemies of the cross, but beloved for the sake of the fathers. So one final time, it could be that David is suffering based on the Absalom incidents, or he's suffering in general. If he's suffering in general for doing right, praise the Lord for that. But if you're suffering for doing wrong, then of course the consequences are all yours. But Absalom is the main focal point, I suppose. A great grief to a father to have a wayward son. And Absalom, like Judas, could have gone down in history as a faithful Jew, a well-to-do Jew, a Jew who would honour his land. But it would fall down to, or he would make the decision, along with Judas Iscariot, to go down in history as an infamous son of Israel. If you go back to the 1950s, up until the mid-1960s, there was a man called Eli, or Eli Cohen, and he was Israeli-born. He was an average Jew living in Israel, late 1950s, going into the mid-1960s. And on two occasions, he tried to apply to work for the Mossad. And of course, Mossad is Israel's secret police. If you are American, your secret police would be the, would be the CIA. Or if you are British, the MI6. MI6, CIA, Mossad. They're probably the three greatest in the world. And Cohen tried on two occasions, like I say, to work for Mossad, was turned down because he was too enthusiastic. He was too keen. And his handlers thought he would be captured and subsequently uh, tortured and murdered. Well, third time lucky, as they say, he was eventually recruited. And his task was a tall order. And he was asked to go to Egypt. And at the time, Israel had no spies in Egypt. And Egypt was very aggressive, bombing Israel from the Golan Heights, or the Golan, uh, Gohan, uh, Gohan, Golan. Golan Heights, I should say. And they were fighting over the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Galilee, and of course the Sea of uh, Tiberias, or the River Tiberias, as it's known, named after the Emperor Tiberius, was a hotly contested piece of real estate. And the Egyptians were shelling the Jews on the kibbutz, uh, just Jewish people trying to make a living. And uh, you had rockets being fired over from Egypt by the Golan Heights, like I say. And Israel got fed up with this day in and day, uh, day, in and day out. And Mossad said to Cohen, we need you to go to Egypt. We need you to infiltrate the Egyptian society, like Damascus, the capital, and find out what is going on. Well, 
Eli or Ellie Cohen are very brave men. Cairo. Cairo. Excuse me, Cairo. Uh, in Egypt. I'll come to Damascus and Syria a little later. But uh, Cohen was sent from Israel to uh, Egypt, like I say, to infiltrate what was taking place there. And when he arrived there, he was able to move up the chain very quickly. He made friends in the military. Uh, he made friends uh, in the world of commerce, like business. And he made friends with the uh, presidents of Egypt, who had been the military attaché in Buenos Aires. It's a fascinating true story of a very brave Jew. Could have been Absalom, but no. Could have been Judas, but no. Well, after a period of time in Cairo, Cohen was able to not only infiltrate the military, the world of commerce, like I say, but he was offered the Deputy Defence Ministry portfolio. He got into the Egyptian cabinet, would you believe? Mossad couldn't believe it. And they were very uh, enthralled, shall we say, that he'd been able to get into the Egyptian cabinets, was leaking secrets uh, back to Jerusalem, and they were able to stop many attacks taking place. Would cut a long story short, eventually he was captured. He was using Morse code every night uh, to send signals back to Jerusalem, like I say, back to Mossad HQ. And the Egyptians, using, using Russian equipment, were able to track him down. And of course he was put on trial. It was filmed, black and white footage. He was hung. A description was put around his neck, like this is a traitor, this is a Zionist. The usual Islamic propaganda. And 56 years later, his widow, who never remarried, continues to fight for his body to be repatriated back to Israel. A very remarkable man. Could have been Absalom, like I say. Could have been Judas, like I say. But Judas chose money over the master. And Absalom uh, chose power over the potentates of potentates. Of course, David is a type of the potentates of potentates, you understand. So just a quick story to put on tape for this morning. Because I always like to salute uh, brave Jews. As far as I know, Cohen wasn't a saved man wasn't religious but he loved Israel and his love for Israel would result in the loss of his life and he saved many lives in Israel and like I said they were fighting over the river Tiberias they were upset that Israel had that lake and of course from that lake they get a lot of their water but Psalm 6 is dealing with uh, uh, with uh, David and Absalom and in Patrick's reference bible there's a footnote which would suggest that David this is a very strange footnote, but it's made very, oh, it's, it's made clearly in his reference Bible that David caught some kind of a disease from Bathsheba. I can't substantiate that. I can't even allude to that. I've been through the Word of God many times, but it's a theory that his reference Bible would suggest. Because in Psalm 6, he's suffering with health issues, but I don't uh, think it's down to the Bathsheba incident per se. Because like uh, we know, and if you read the word of God, you should know as well, that David would stay with Bathsheba after their firstborn uh, was killed by the Lord. And they had uh, Solomon. And it says how he, was, how he was greatly beloved of the Lord. But it's an interesting thought. But like so many famous Bible teachers, every so often they take a chance. Uh, and they suggest this, they suggest that. And sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But I'm always interested in people like David, Absalom, Jesus, uh, Judas. Judas would sell out Jesus, like I say, for money. Absalom 
would set out David for power. And of course, Judas died a cursed death. Absalom died a cursed death. We go back to Psalm 6 too. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. For I am weak, physically weak, spiritually weak, emotionally weak. Like I said last week, O Lord, heal me. For my bones are vexed. And go back to James chapter 5. We looked at James chapter 5 last week. And James 5 deals with healing in the context, spiritual healing, because the Jews were under great persecution, great pressure, uh, many problems during the first century. And uh, when Cohen was asked to go to Egypt, he did a great work and he was able to relay secrets back to Jerusalem. It would cost him his life, a public show, a public trial. And uh, like I said, it was filmed as a warning to people around the world. If you fast forward to the mid-1960s, President Nasser, son-in-law, was also working closely with Mossad, uh, sharing secrets with them about Egypt's workings, shall we say. And of course, uh, Nasser was one of of, uh, Egypt's uh, most famous leaders, followed by Sadat, who did a deal with Carter, and I think it was Begin, at the White House, late 1970s, and uh, not long after that, Sadat was murdered by his own people. And if you think of uh, Rabin, who also did a deal with uh, Arafat, and he was murdered by one of his own in Tel Aviv, because that land is holy, and it's always interesting when the Muslims kill their own like Sadat, or the Jews kill their own like Rabin. Rabin was murdered by an Orthodox Jew, and Sadat was murdered by an Islamic militant as i like to say uh, james 5 like i say kind of builds on to what we looked at last week uh, concerning healing and james 5 also deals with faults like verse 16 confess your faults not sins confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed that's the key to be healed not to receive the last rites the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much so faults It's not the same as a sin, and a sin is not the same as a fault. A fault is like failing to collect somebody on time, or failing to pay the bills on time, or failing to get the shopping in. Well, a few days ago, Patrick was reading online about a priest that he used to know, a pre-Vatican II priest, who woke up one morning, and his tooth had fallen out of his mouth, and he went to his local hospital to get it checked out, and they did a scan, probably an MRI, I would imagine, or an ultrasound, or a CAT scan, And it turned out this priest, less than 60, uh, had cancer, jaw cancer, like Sigmund Freud, who was a chain smoker. And uh, he put a blog up, a blog, a blog up online, basically saying that he was dying, came out of nowhere, couldn't be healed, couldn't recover. And he died, I think, four or five days ago, Mm. went downhill very quickly. And this guy had a PhD, a BA, uh, an MA, had many letters after his name. But I got thinking about him last night. And if I was to sit down with this priest, I didn't know him, Patrick did. A very bright man, went to Rome, I believe, worked at the Secretary of State's office, was a high flyer, may have become bishop, I suppose, had he not been sick. But I thought about him last night, this very bright priest, studied in Rome, was at the Secretary of State's office, like I say, English-born, of course, but went to Rome, was earmarked out for great things, I suppose, But I thought to myself last night, if I was to sit down with this priest and ask him to exegete uh, James 5, 16, he couldn't do it. He couldn't tell you the difference between a fault and a sin. He couldn't delineate the difference between standing and state. 
And it's always tragic when somebody like him, very well educated, and yet is lost. Like many of the Jews that would clash with Jesus, the best in their day, highly educated, would rejoice, would worship, would bask in their own religion and education. And yet when it came to the simplicity of Christ, had no idea what they were doing. Or when it came to the simplicity of Christ, had no idea what it really meant. And this priest spoke about heaven and hell, which is unusual for a priest of this era. Uh, most priests are more concerned about purgatory than hell. And it was, it was a throwback to pre-Vatican II days, when the Catholics knew the enemy and the Protestants knew the enemy. If you go back to the 1950s, if you were a Protestant, I mean old school Protestants, you knew that the Catholics were the enemy. And if you were a Catholic... Uh, in the 1950s, you knew, you knew that the Protestants were the enemy. Now, they are the best of friends. So it is bizarre at times when you come across blogs about heaven heaven and hell and a judgment, so on and so forth. It sounds somewhat out of place, really, because the Church of Rome today holds to, let's be quite honest, universal salvation. Nobody goes to hell. But James 5 is speaking about faults, not sins, and your priest doesn't know the difference between the two. And to hear about this priest dying of jaw cancer, like Freud would do so, was pretty sad. And I don't wish uh, anybody to die, especially somebody who is religious and as a result going to hell forever. Go back to Psalm 6 and look at verse 8 again. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. So David is praying, he's weeping, he's a very emotional man. He's got the weight of the world in his shoulders, he's got his son trying to track him down, trying to kill him. Wanting his throne, people will kill for far less. And yet, in Absalom's eyes, he thought the throne was uh, his. And Judas thought he could sell out the Lord and make financial capital. Judas uh, would regret what took place. Absalom, perhaps, would reg uh, regret what took place. We don't know. But both Jews uh, died a cursed death. And at someone like Eli or Eli Cohen, a very brave Israeli Jew was able to infiltrate Egypt's most uh, powerful and influential uh, corridors of power. Did great work, like I say, is a hero in Israel to this day. Was able to start many wars, many incursions. The Soviets were using up-to-date missiles and tanks and this and that to uh, send to Egypt. And of course Syria, Damascus, was also uh, looking to purchase this material to bomb the Jews. And Cohen was caught, put on trial... And of course he humiliated the entire Egyptian government. But he's gone down as a faithful, brave Jew. It could have been the same for Absalom, but it wasn't to be. And like I say, it could have been the same for Judas, but it was not to be. Also from Psalm 6, 8, you've got Christ speaking. And this goes back once again to double application. The Holy Ghost was in all of the uh, prophets of old. In fact, keep your hand there. Uh, go to First Peter. Uh, first Peter, I think it's chapter one. Uh, first Peter, yeah, First Peter one, eleven. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So when David was speaking, he's speaking for Christ, or the Holy Ghost was speaking through David. Or, if you really want to push it, Christ uh, was speaking through King David. Second Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, look at verse 20. 
Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Go back to Psalm 6. So when David is speaking, yes, he's speaking for himself. Obviously, this is what, a thousand BC. But Christ, the Holy Ghost, take your pick. It can be the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. Not the same, of course. But they work so closely together. So therefore, when David is speaking, yes, he's speaking for himself. But Christ, the Holy Ghost, is also speaking through David. This is a prophecy, of course. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Luke 13, Matthew 7. But here, Absalom and his men plotting and planning to overthrow him. And again, you see the types and shadows. Incredible. Look at verse 9. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. No doubts. He's very confident. He knows the Lord. The Lord knows him. And yes, David was a rascal at times. A carnal man. A cruel man. Not the best parents in the world. But he was a saved man. And he is very typical of a New Testament Christian. Old man, new man. The Lord hath heard my supplication. I love the absolute assurance of this. The Lord will receive my prayer. Going back to verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. Lord, help me out. I'm under great pressure. I'm struggling. Israel has been struggling since 1948. Mossad have been able to infiltrate the Syrian regime, the Egyptian regime, Damascus, Cairo, and Nasser, like I say, had a grandson. Make that a son-in-law, excuse me, a son-in-law. One of uh, Nasser's daughters married this particular chap whose name escapes me. And he was also a spy for Mossad. He was working at the British Embassy in London, or the Egyptian Embassy in London. And uh, he phoned up the Israeli Embassy in London. Mid-1960s, late yeah, late 1960s, early 1970s. And he said, my name is such and such. I've got information for you. And of course, what he didn't realise is that the switchboard recorded every phone call that the Israeli embassy received. I'm sure that's probably protocol all, all over the world. And uh, Nasser died and he was called back to uh, Cairo. Sadat would replace Nasser. These are dictators, of course. There's no democracy in Islamic countries. And Sadat said to him, uh, you, you are going back to London. And you'll be promoted at the embassy in London. And he went back to London, late 1960s. And not long after turning to London, the phone rang. Is that such and such? He said yes. And of course they played the recording that he had made some months beforehand. And of course he went wide as a sheet. And they had the dirt on him. He was being blackmailed, basically. It's, it's interesting because he was able to help uh, not only Israel, but also uh, Egypt... And he died under mysterious circumstances in 2007. Similar to Cohen, but not quite. He was Islamic, uh, serving Israel for money. Whereas Cohen was Jewish, serving his country for love, for respect. And yet both characters around the same time, contemporaries, shall we say, did a great work and have gone down in history as remarkable men. Lost, I believe. But at least they made some positive impact, unlike Absalom, unlike uh, Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 10. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Go to Revelation chapter 1. So again, David is speaking, but the greater David is speaking. The Spirit of God is speaking through the prophets. The Spirit of God is inspiring the prophets to say what they would say, do what they would do. 
Yes, Absalom is partly in the picture here. He has to be, but this is also a great picture of a righteous man living righteously, doing what is right and suffering the consequences for it. Paul would suffer for doing right. David would also suffer for doing right. But sometimes David would suffer for doing wrong. And uh, if you think of Psalm, is it 51 from memory? When he's praying that the Lord that the Lord would not take the Holy Spirit from him. And he's really in a bad state. That of course is the Bathsheba incident. And of course in that reference he doesn't want to lose his priestly anointing. Because he was a priest, he was a prophet, he was a king. Revelation 1, look at verse 7. Behold he cometh with clouds, Messiah of course. And every eye shall see him. Well you go back to the first century. This would have been thought of as being impossible comical you couldn't even see down the streets in the first century you couldn't even see what was taking place two or three miles away during the first century but now you can see what is going on all all over the world cohen was able to get high up in the uh, egyptian government like i say he was the number two at the defense ministry had all the blueprints he was aware of what was taking place as far as the russians uh, were concerned but when he was caught he was put on display, his corpse was put on display for six hours as a warning to other people. And that was filmed and broadcast all over the Islamic world. CC prophecy is always uh, become more and more relevant. But even back in 1965, 66, when he was murdered, there was no such thing as satellite television. Satellite television didn't begin until the 1990s, just before the first Gulf War. We've come a long way, haven't we, in a very short period of time. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, north, south, east, west, and they also which pierced him. Well, of course, the Jews would hand him over to the Romans, who would pierce him, nail him to a cross. So if Rome were in charge the first time around, Rome will be in charge the second time around. And it is priest who died a few days ago, woke up one morning, thought he had maybe 25, 30 years ahead of him, not even 60 really, tooth had fallen out. Saw his GP, who fast-tracked him to the hospital. Scans, like I say, took place. MRIs, a a CAT scan, blood tests, what have you. And they said, sorry, father such and such. It is terminal jaw cancer. A very rare disease, I believe. Uh, I think only Sigmund Freud had something similar. In fact, when Freud was dying of jaw cancer, the stench was so horrific that his dog wouldn't go into the room. And here's Sigmund Freud, the great psychiatrist, able to help people apparently with all their problems and yet his own daughter was a lesbian and he couldn't help her behold he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him wail they were wailing in egypt when the israelis were able to ambush egyptian uh, troops on the border of israel and the egyptians were so clever they turned it into a victory and they did this they said well what we would do is we'll take the egyptian bodies and dress them up as Israelis. And we would drag the bodies around the streets of Cairo. And pretend that, that, that they are Jews. IDF. Israeli Defense Force. And of course the people turned out. Throwing stones. And uh, shouting and screaming at these dead Zionists. As they thought they were. As they are called. Not realizing that they were Egyptian soldiers. Dressed up to look like Jews. Propaganda. And you've got these Muslims weeping and wailing. Wanting to avenge their God, what do they say? Alarak Bar, same sort of a thing. But here, the kindreds, people of the earth are wailing because of him. They're not greeting him. They are in distress. Even so, amen. One more time. 
Behold, he cometh with clouds, son of man, and every eye shall see him physical, north, south, east, west. This is the second advent, not the rapture, incidentally. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth, and all kindreds of the earth, shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Go back to Psalm 6 again. Look at verse 10. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed, greatly troubled. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Nasser's son-in-law, on the one hand, wanted money, and yet, on the other hand, wanted to stop a full-scale war between Egypt and Israel. Was a brave man, like I say, and he worked uh, with Mossad for a period of time and uh, died under mysterious circumstances back in 2007, whereas Cohen died back in the, in the 1960s. You say, that's terrible, that Cohen's body was left uh, on display for six hours, and yes, it was terrible, but if you think about uh, when Cromwell was dug up by uh, Charles II, for memory, his corpse was left on display for months and months and months and months, maybe over a year or so, as a warning to anybody that would come against the crown. First uh, John chapter 2, First uh, John chapter 2, look at verse 28. And now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Same sort of a language. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. David is speaking, and in the context he's speaking on behalf of Christ, in type, like unsaved people. We shun at this man to rule over us, to reign over us. And it's over in Luke and Matthew, how his enemies will be publicly executed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Ashamed at his appearing, Revelation chapter 1, 1 John two twenty-eight. But here, dealing with saved people. And now little children, abide in him. John 15, abide in him. Without me you can do nothing. That when he shall appear, second advent, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming at the judgment seat of Christ, of course. So once again, go back to Psalm 6. These verses have at least two applications. David is speaking concerning his own suffering, his own struggles. He's dealing with Absalom, who's trying to overthrow him. But it begins with, O Lord, 6-1, going back to, yes, in the context, David, a saved man, calling out to his God, but an unsaved person, calling out to their mother and father while they're being tortured to death. As Psalm 6 continues to unfold, David is going to get the help that he needs. And we'll pick it up in verse, or we'll pick that up in Psalm 7 next week. But here, he's really in the pit. Uh, he's in the world of despair. As far as the footnotes from Patrick's reference Bible about Bathsheba uh, giving David a dangerous disease, I don't know where he gets that from, the particular author. It's an interesting hypothesis. I would have thought that David would have given her a disease. Mm. Uh, David was very promiscuous, whereas Bathsheba was just a housewife. But sometimes great Bible teachers take a chance, they speculate, or they pick out a few verses, and they build a doctrine on a few verses and you've got to be careful with that because again this piece of scripture the psalms can be taught spiritually historically doctrinally or eschatologically and so far we've been very blessed to have spent 14 sundays and almost recorded 10 hours of material 
looking at the first six psalms and found and uh, been able to find a lot of doctrinal material. But when it comes to Jews, when it comes to uh, being a good Jew, I suppose like Cohen, you want to respect such a person. When I was growing up, I was always interested in the good guys like the A-Team or Knight Rider or Airwolf or Shane, the 1950s movie, or Chips, uh, the American uh, program about two police officers on motorbikes uh, putting the bad guy out of town. I think of Shane, that famous movie from the 1950s. Uh, Alan Ladd, who is called upon to clean out and wipe out the scum, basically. And this good family in the Midwest were unable to do so. And of course, Shane turns up and is the fastest shooter in the West, as they would say in America. And he takes out one of the bad guys, whose name escapes me. I forget his character, the name of the character. One of the bad guys. And uh, he gets in his horse, a white horse, of course, yeah. picture of Christ. Yeah. And if he goes into the sunset, every movie is based on the Bible. Shane pictures Christ. The family that he is trying to help is the church. The bad man is a devil. Nothing new, really. And, of course, the damsel in distress is a picture of the bride of Christ. And every so often you may have another party picturing Israel wanting to be helped, wanting to be assisted. One final thought. When I go back to Eli or Eli, Cohen, he could have gone one of two ways. He could have remained in his secular job, his nine-to-five job. He could have just kept his head down. He was doing okay for himself and when Mossad approached him he said well I want to work for you and they said to him well if you work for us you may not come home if they capture you being the Egyptians you won't live to tell the story they will torture you uh, and after torturing you they will murder you and he made his decision that he would serve his country and Nasser's son-in-law was also given the opportunity to serve Israel which he decided to do so and that could have gone one of two ways the Egyptians could have caught up with him tortured him but uh, he was able to survive uh, the Egyptian secret police and the Israeli secret police just two men secular not religious uh, one wanted money the other wanted to do what was right for his own country both have gone down in history as brave remarkable men and yet you look at Christians for the most part don't like to rock the boat don't like to get their hands dirty don't want to uh, be particularly brave, want to just rub along with the world. And I, I often wonder why so many uh, Christian people don't want to leave a legacy, uh, whereas unsaved people do. Cohen's body is somewhere in Egypt to this day, probably in an, um, in an unmarked grave, and his widow has been trying to get it flown back to Israel, rightly so. And yet Absalom died a cursed death, was killed by David's uh, chief of staff, and of course Judas couldn't live with himself, hanged himself, the tree snapped, the body hit the ground, blood went everywhere, a bit like when Ahab and Jezebel died, and these guys have gone down in history as being on the wrong side of history. But David is really up against it, and if you want to study the two natures of the believer, when saved people go through the mill, David is a man to really examine. One of our brothers in Spain is in hospital this morning, he's been there for a week, we've been praying for him for a week, We've been interceding for him for a week. In great pain, he's had many tests. It's not overly clear what the problem is. Not particularly old. A good brother loves the Lord. And we are hoping he'll be back with us for next Sunday. And he hopefully will be. But there's no reason sometimes why the righteous suffer. Many times we suffer for doing wrong. Let's be quite honest about it. But not always. Not always. Job would suffer 
and he didn't do anything wrong. Joseph would suffer, and he didn't do anything wrong. And Paul would suffer all of his life, Acts chapter 9, and he didn't do anything wrong. Whereas David did plenty wrong, and for the most part, didn't get touched. And that's another, another mystery in scripture, why sometimes people who are saved live like the devil and don't get chastised for it, don't really suffer for it. Whereas those who live right for the Lord do suffer. It's a mystery, it's a paradox. But we'll close it there, and next week pick it up from Psalm 7. Just a quick clarification, Cohen went into Syria, not Egypt, and he was able to infiltrate the Syrian government, not the Egyptian government. Just a quick clarification.